don't know if you're following along in that text, but I just got to tell you, I told our, our new members group um, this morning that this has been a lot of work this week. Some, some, some weeks as we prepare for a message, it's just like God's just kind of like speaking verbally off the pages. But this week, this is a very difficult text. Um, and so bear with me as I, um, as I jump into this text. One of the things, uh, just to kind of give you some background last week, that the overall idea that, that, that David had, had flowed out of this text, out of John chapter 6, was how, do, how does one obtain salvation? How is one saved? That's a message for, um, it's a message for the, the believer um, that, he, that he or she understands how she was saved. Um, and it's a message for the unbeliever or the skeptic or the one who um, isn't considering Christ at all, how one becomes saved. We saw that uh, these crowds, uh, once again, were seeking Jesus. We've been seeing this over this past several weeks, these crowds just kind of following Jesus around. And, and once again, last week, we saw them seeking Jesus. Um, but once again, we see that they weren't really looking for Jesus as much as they were just looking for another meal. They were looking for a meal ticket from Jesus. Uh, he had just uh, pre, uh, preached, um, or he had just fed 5,000 men uh, and roughly twice that amount of women and children. So rough, around 18,000, 16, 18, 20,000 people he had just fed miraculously with a few loaves and a, and a couple of fish. Um, and so they were fed to the fill. Um, they, got, they were temporarily satisfied. Um, their, their bellies were temporarily satisfied. Uh, and here it is the next day, and, and David kind of walked us through this, that um, just like any, any one of us, you know, we, we tend to, after about 24 hours, we, we tend to start looking for another meal pretty, uh, pretty aggressively. And so the crowd was doing that. They followed Jesus uh, back across the, the lake. Uh, and we saw that when they approached him, he kind of goes off in left field with this text about being the bread that comes down from heaven and on and on and on. And he's really trying to tell them, I'm trying to reveal to you what your true need is. Your true need is not that you're just hungry and you need something to eat. There's a greater need, and I'm trying to reveal that to you. And Jesus was doing that, uh, and he's basically saying, you know, the bread that you've come to me for, it doesn't fully satisfy. You're going to eat, and just like yesterday, you're going you're gonna to eat to your full, and then you're going to come back tomorrow, and you're going to be hungry again because what you seek isn't what truly satisfies, isn't what truly fulfills you. And then we, say, then we see Jesus say, I am the true bread of life. I'm the one that satisfies completely and fully. I'm the one who, who does that. And we see that through that process that when we're thinking about salvation, that God alone is the initiator of salvation. He alone initiates salvation. And man's response is to simply believe. Uh, and that's important for us because we don't want anyone leaving away from here with the idea that you have to do something in order for God to look at you so that you might obtain salvation. That God is the initiator. He's the one who comes to you first. Um, and he reveals himself to you through his son, Jesus, through the proclamation of the gospel, through the good news of who Christ is. Uh, and then we put our faith in that. So David was walking us all through that um, last week. Uh, and, and let me just say this as kind of a uh, kind of an interruption into the end of his sermon um, last week. If we believe that, if we believe that God is the initiator of salvation and that he alone is the one who does the work of saving people, that none of us in here have the ability, the power, or the authority to save anybody, but only God, then this should 
give us a supernatural confidence, like a supernatural confidence and a hope to point others to Jesus. Like this should, this should stir us up to go and make Jesus known because at the end of the day, we can't fail because the responsibility is not ours. We're not the ones taking the test. You see, we proclaim the gospel and God does the saving and that's important and that should give us boldness and that should give us a, a hope and a confidence. And so last week was all about how salvation comes to us, how we receive salvation. And, and let me just say this, it's, it's imperative that you treat uh, today's message um, as if it's a direct continuation from last week. So, so I'm jumping in, like, just imagine that, that Monday through Saturday didn't happen, and that David, David has just finished talking, and I'm jumping in now. I'm interjecting into the conversation. I'm going to take us through the rest of the story. So... If I go long, uh, you guys need to give David a hard time about that because he went long today. It's just it's a continuation of his sermon. <laughs> um, but one, one important truth that we need to remember is this, and let me, let me just kind of keep putting this before you, that salvation is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. It's not anything that we earn. It's not anything that we do. It's a gift that is giving to, given to us by the grace of God, and it is sustained by this same grace. I think David might have talked about that last week, that, that, that we, uh, uh, we are, through the grace of God, we are, we are saved, and through the grace of God, we are held in that salvation, that it's, it, we, can't, we can't work our way into it, nor can we sin our way out of it, that we're, it's all in the, in, the, in the bubble of God's grace. Um, so let me just maybe open up with this scripture so you can see what I'm talking about. In Romans chapter 8, uh, one, of, one of my very favorite passages in scripture, starting in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a great promise? Isn't it a great promise that for those who love God, all things, whatever circumstance, whatever situation, good, bad, indifferent, all things, all things work for the, for, together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. So all things that happen are for good. And I know that's a, <laughs> that's a very general statement, and you might be in a place right now where you're like, I cannot believe that. Like, I cannot put my faith in that, saying that what I'm in right now, the situation that I'm going through today is good. It's going to work out for some kind of good. It's not. But I'm here to tell you, believe on this promise. You may not see it today, but all things work together for, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen? Amen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? I mean, that is good news. No matter what, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Regardless of what you're going through or what you're facing or what's going on in your life, nothing can separate you from the love of God of God that is in Christ. And that's, that's, that is paramount, that that love is only found in Christ. That's where it's found, only in Christ. And so we're all diverse here. Um, if I was to just take a poll of what you do, where you are from, uh, how old are you, those kinds of things, um, we would see that this is a diverse crowd of people. Um, and so that, that, that's wonderful, and I pray that our uh, our church family becomes even more and more diverse um, and, and hopes that that, that that would happen. But I will say this. There's more things that unify us than, than cause us to be d- diverse. There, there's more things that unify us uh, than, than distinguishes us apart from one another. And namely, namely one thing, and kind of, kind of pointing to our text, the, the hunger of our hearts, uh, that's one thing that we can all say we're unified. And we're on the same playing field that our hearts are hungry, that we want to fill our hearts with something. Every one of us struggle with this. So good news today, I'm not pointing you out personally. I'm not, I'm not harping on you as, as a person because this is the thing that we all struggle with as, as humans, that there's a longing, there's this emptiness in our heart, and, and we try to fill this. We try to fill this. Uh, and, and, and where we're going to go today, hopefully we'll, we'll point to what um, what matters most when it comes to trying to fill that emptiness and that longing in our hearts. Uh, in, our, in our passage today in verse 41 of chapter 6, it says, so the Jews grumbled about him. Uh, this is continuing what David was talking about last week as he was talking about bread and it being the life. And, um, and so they start grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph whose uh, father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So Jesus is blowing the minds of this crowd. He's saying some things that are just really like messing with their heads. And, and they're to a point now where they just start grumbling. They start having arguments and confrontations with one another about what Jesus is saying. It's like, this can't make sense. This guy, what he's saying. And it, it, here's the deal. A big, a big idea to take away from this text is that the humility of Christ is offensive to the proud. Jesus' humility offends those who are prideful, who are, who are proud. And that's what's going on right here. His, his lowly condition has been a stumbling block since day one with these people. It's, 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 it's been a stumbling block for them, and it's a stumbling block for us as a natural man, that this, this lowliness, this, this humility that he has. Um, and you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. For, Jew, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, Jesus is a stumbling block. And that's one of the things when we, um, I'm going to go off my notes for a minute, but one of the things that we, uh, we did 
as, as we cast vision for planting Sulphur Community Church, what we realize is that churches uh, in general have a culture, church families. Local churches have cultures built into those, into those families. So if you go to any one of the local churches in this area, you'll, you'll experience a type of culture that's maybe different from another church you go to. That's normal, and that's wonderful. That's beautiful. Uh, what we were learning as we were trying to reach those who are least reached, those who are far away from Jesus, is that not only were we asking them to... Um, to encounter this stumbling block that is the gospel, but we were asking them to encounter a culture that they had to overcome as well. And so that's why we're here. That's one of the main reasons we're here because we feel that we need to tear down any cultural barriers that may exist in the church. And the only stumbling block that we set before people is Christ himself. We want you to wrestle with the gospel. We want you to see Christ. We want you to wrestle with that and be offended by all the things that he says uh, and, and, and let him reduce that proud heart, that pride in your, in your life to, to, to humility. Let, let you see Christ. Let you get over that stumbling block. So back to the, to the notes here. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians. And this is why it's vital to understand how we are saved. That's why it's so vital that without the grace of God uh, in our lives, we can't, even, we can't see Jesus Christ. Without God doing something in us, without the gift of grace that is from God, we, we can't even see Jesus as the Messiah, as the, the one who, who's come to save us. And that's what we see here with these, with these, uh, these crowds, is that they couldn't, they couldn't see Jesus as the, the one who was supposed to come from heaven, like the Messiah, the one to come to save them. They couldn't see that because they weren't connected to God that way. Had Jesus come as a conquering king, uh, with, with a, a, a mighty army ready to overthrow the Roman Empire, like they would have quickly signed up for that. They would have quickly signed up for that, but, but here they, they, they are grumbling about who this guy is and who he says he is. So the pride of these people has, has kept them from seeing that this man is from God, and they're too proud to even see that. Like, no, 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 no. that can't be, that can't be. This is not what we understand it to be. And so in verse 43, Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, that, there's a lot in that text. I will say that David preached a message on that last week because this text is just simply Jesus repeating what he said in verse 37, that, uh, that all who the Father give to me will come to me. That, that the Father is doing the work of salvation. The Father is doing the one that's giving people to me, and they will come to me. So no one comes to me unless the Father gives them to me, unless the Father draws them to me. That's the only way people come to know Jesus. And so 44, uh, this, this verse here, um, let me just say this as a, as a general statement in case you missed it. Uh, in any sermon uh, setting that you've sat among in this body, if you've missed it, that no one can become a Christian without the grace of God. No one can become a Christian. You cannot come and put your faith in Jesus apart from the grace of God. And that's how I'm going to comment on that verse. I hope you see that, that from, the, the, like from this grumbling and, and what's going on here, we're, we're unable to prepare ourselves by our own strength. We're unable to prepare ourselves by our own good works in order to turn to faith and call upon Jesus. Like We're, we're, we're unable to do that. And so let's not... Um, Let's not be deceived into thinking that, um, that these men had a, had a real wish of coming to Christ. Like they had a desire of coming to Christ. The reason man cannot come to Christ without God is because he has no desire. He has no wish to come to Christ. 
You see, so, so it's not like, oh, I want to come to Christ, but, but Blake said that out of verse 44 that, that God's got to draw me. I can't come to Christ unless God d- like draws me to him. So, so understand this. You are deceived if you're thinking that because if you are drawn to Christ, it is because God is doing that in you. He is drawing you to Christ. You, in your natural state, you do not have a desire to come to Jesus. In my natural state, I do not have a desire to come to Jesus. I do not have a wish to come to Jesus in my natural state. God has to do something in me. He has to create in me a heart that desires Jesus. So God draws men, and God draws women to Jesus, and all who he draws will come. All of them, all that the Father gives me will come to me, is what Jesus said last week in the text we were in. So, so God's doing the work. God is initiating the work. He's doing all of it. And it's funny that Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. And, and understanding the context, he's saying, hey, you Jews, you know what grumbling got you in the beginning, in the Exodus, right? Don't grumble among yourselves about this. God was delivering you way back in the beginning and you grumbled among yourselves and you wandered in the desert for 40 years. So don't grumble among yourselves because here's the deal. Your grumbling is not going to get you to any conclusion. Understand that at the end of the day, when you finish your arguments and your debates about everything, you're not going to be at the conclusion of how to get to, to, to heaven, how to get the kingdom to come to you. You're not going to have that conclusion because God draws men to himself. So no one, none of your conversations that you're having, unless God is drawing you to himself, you're not going to come to me. So quit the debating, quit the grumbling. Don't grumble among yourselves. And so just to, just to, just to note that sin, sin has broken everything. And sin has broken everyone. There is not a peace of creation that sin has not touched. There is not a moment in in creation and in our world, there's not one square inch of all of creation that sin has not touched. It's touched every part. Sin has broken everything and it's broken everyone. And sin has even broken here, you gotta get this, sin has even broken the will of man. So apart, in my natural state, in my natural sinful self, my will is broken. My will is broken. It's, I, I can't will myself to want Jesus. I can't will myself to want the kingdom because my own will has been touched by sin. It's been broken. So I need God to do a work. Like Apart from me, I need God to do something. I need God to do a work in my life. He needs to draw me. So it must be by the will of God and the grace of God that we come to him. And so I don't want to, again, I touched on this a minute. We can't detach verse 44 from 43. We can't just say, no one can come to the Father, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Like, we just can't take that verse and run with it because it's directly connected to 43. Like I said, you're grumbling, you're, you're arguing, you're debating, you're trying to come to a conclusion about how to get God, and you're not going to get God unless God does something first. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. That, they're not, that it's not going to lead to any decisive conclusion at all about Christ, about who he is and why he's come and how he's come. And so he dispels this grumbling and he says, you know what? Only God can accomplish what I'm talking about. You guys are grumbling about this. You can't understand what I'm saying. Only God, only God can help you understand this and accomplish what I'm talking about. And so the reason anyone 
will come to Jesus is that the Father will draw him to Jesus. Get that? Like God's doing the work. And, and, and the way David set it up for us last week is our response is just to believe. We just believe. We, we don't have to do some kind of crazy good works for him to capture our attention, for us to capture his attention. He does the work. And so there's this gigantic lingering question now, right? Um, and it should be on all our minds. This question should be on every one of our minds. Is everyone drawn to Christ? And if they are, will they come? Right? All who the Father gives me will come to me. No one comes to, the, comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, is everyone drawn to Christ? And will they all come? That's, that should be a question we wrestle with, right? Um, in his sermon preached in February of 1858, we're, going way, we're reaching way back, one of the last known what we call Puritans, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he preached a message called Particular Redemption. And, and in this message, he kind of concluded the message, and I'll kind of quote the sermon. He said, okay, leaving controversy, because that's a controversial verse, right? Like understand, trying to understand how, God, how salvation works and our part in that and how God works in that. And that, that's a bit controversial. So he says, leaving controversy, I will now answer a question. He says, tell me then, sir, whom did Christ die for? Whom did Christ die for? Understanding what we've just read. Will you answer me a question or two, and I will tell you whether he died for you. Do you want a Savior? Do you want a Savior? Do you feel you need a Savior? Are you this morning conscious of sin? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you are lost? Then Christ died for you and you will be saved. Are you this morning conscious that you have no hope in the world but Christ? Do you feel that you of yourself cannot offer an atonement that can satisfy God's justice? Have you given up all confidence in yourselves? And can you say upon your bended knees, Lord, save, or I perish? Then Christ died for you. So we don't have to wrestle with that question. If I can acknowledge the fact that I am in great need of a Savior, and, I, and if I can acknowledge the fact that I can't get to this Savior, I can't have this Savior without Him doing a work in me, and I can't, I'm not going to make it without Him, then I'm going to perish without Him. If, if I'm at that point, then I don't have to ask the question, did Christ die for me? Yes, He died for me. Yes, He died for me. And so for the one who would come to Him, for the one who would come to Christ, he says this in verse 45, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. So Jesus is saying here, when his father draws you unto him and you come, it will be out of love. It will not be out of coercion. It will not be out of force. It's going to be strictly out of love that you come to the Father, that you see Him as all glorious and all satisfying, and that you come to Him. And it is impossible to know God and reject Jesus. Understand that. Like, you, I, it's impossible for me to have that encounter with God and reject Jesus. Like, 
okay, Jesus, the only way I can see that you are the bread come down from heaven, the one that gives life everlasting, is that God do something in me. And whenever God does something in me, I can't help but see that. I can't reject the fact that you are the bread come down from heaven, the one to come and give eternal life. So only through Jesus can we know and understand who God is. Like we don't know God apart from Jesus. We, the, 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 understanding the Trinity, they are the same person. They are the same Godhead in three different people. Understand that. So you can't know one without knowing the other. So what you are seeking after to, um, to fulfill that hunger that we talk about, like, unity, like across the board, we all have this insatiable desire, this hunger in our heart that needs to be filled. And, and what we seek after f- to fulfill um, our hunger It's been prepared for us at the cross. What we're looking for, what we're looking to satisfy our souls has been prepared for us at the cross. Look at verse 47, and and, and Jesus is going to be saying these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, let me stop for just a minute there and insert a little comment. I am the bread of life. Here is where Jesus starts saying, I am this, I am that. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. On and on and on. He's starting to use these I am terms. This is very, very, um, how can I say it? This is very shocking that he's saying this because who is I am? God refers to himself as I am when he, you know, when he, when he sends Moses to, to go see Pharaoh, he says, well, who should I say sent me to, to, to do all these things? And he says, you tell him I am sent you because like, I am meaning I was, I am, and I will be. I am Yahweh. I am God almighty. I am. And so because that name is so holy and revered that the Jewish people would never even say those terms. It would be blasphemy to even say, I am in anything. So they would fashion all of their statements and all of their language so that they didn't have to use those two words together because those were holy and revered words. And here Jesus is throwing them around like he's got unlimited supply of them. I am this, I am that, I am this. And so these cats are really getting bent out of shape right now because he's now he's being, again, he's being blasphemous. He's using the term that is only, only it only belongs to God and God alone. And here he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. God provided manna for them, rained it down from heaven, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So just like David said last week, the manna that was poured out in the wilderness in the exodus is just a foreshadowing of the bread that's going to come down from heaven and provide eternal life. They were going to die in the desert without God doing something. They couldn't do anything on their own. God had to step in and provide for them. Something on the outside of them had to happen in order for them to have life. But this was only a foreshadow, a typology of the the bread of life that was to come, that that Jesus Christ was going to come, and he was going to be the true bread. And so he says this here. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's not going to be like the manna in the desert, guys. It's not going to be like your, your ancestors. They ate the manna and then they died because it was just really a picture of what was to come. It was a picture of me. So here I am. You want everlasting life. You can't do it on your own. I'm here to provide it. You have to feast on me. I'm the true bread. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he starts saying some pretty crazy things in this text. He really does. Jesus, he continues to leave these, cr- these crowds of people speechless with some of the things that he's saying. And here's the deal. We have history on our side, right? We have the whole story on our side. So let's, let's just consider for a minute w- the context that Jesus is saying all these things in. They didn't have history on their side. They didn't, they didn't have the end. They didn't have the full word of God. We do, and, and this is beneficial to us. So keep in mind that these people, including the disciples who were there, including the followers of Jesus, they, they don't have this kind of history. And here's the deal. If I could just be very, very transparent and honest with you, at this point, like I, if I was one of Jesus' disciples, and we've been trucking along for a little while, and he's been like doing some cool things, but he's kind of been stirring some people up and making some people mad and saying some weird things. Like I could have hung in there for a while, but the minute that he started saying, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, like I probably would have checked out at that point. I was like, you know what? It ain't worth it, man. I'm, this is kind of weird. And you're talking about cannibalism and stuff, and I'm not down with that. So like, honestly, that's where I would have been as a disciple. So we need to unpack what Jesus is saying here. Uh, kind of break this down. He said some very offensive things, and these choice of words could have very well gotten him stoned to death. Um, and so for one, he keeps using that phrase, I am, like I talked about, but he's also foretelling of what's going to happen at the cross. He said, guys, I've come, God has sent me, like, I'm preparing this feast for you, and it's going to be finalized at the cross. What Jesus did on the cross was this preparation of this feast of salvation that, that he's telling us that we need to feast on. He said, I'm going to do a work on the cross. My body's going to be broken and my blood is going to be poured out and you need to partake in that. You put your faith in that and that's going to give you life everlasting forever. And you can only do that. You can only partake in this meal by faith. That's the only way you have a seat at the table is by faith. Look at 52, verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves. So like the argument and the conversations is getting ramped up and heated. And he's saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? So now we kind of got this story like Nicodemus. How can I be born again? Like, how can I crawl in my mom's womb and be born again? And now I said, how can we like, I don't get that. How can we eat the flesh of this, this man who's standing here before us? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Blake Foreman just checked out. I left when he said that. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, I don't believe, I I was joking, but I don't believe um, that the crowds understood Jesus as saying, you need to practice cannibalism. Like, I don't think that they received it that way. Uh, um, I'm sure that if that were the case, that we would we would read about the ensuing riot that took place shortly thereafter, but I don't think they understood it that way. What I believe, they, they received it as, this guy is insane. Like, this guy, he's, he's like out of this world. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't know where he's at. He's saying some, some crazy things. How in the world can you eat your flesh, or how can we eat your flesh, and how can we drink your blood. And so you see this repeat in this question, this conversation that is very similar to John chapter three, right? When Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus, he says, you know, if you want, you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again, right? And Nicodemus couldn't understand that in the physical sense. He's like, I don't understand. And, and Jesus goes on to talk to him about faith and how that's applied. And he's doing the same thing here. He goes on to unpack for them that eternal life is found in feasting on me, feasting on Jesus. 
And, and the way you partake of this meal, the way you feast on Jesus is through faith. That's, that's how you do it. This is a, a faith meal, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm thankful that we, we've landed here uh, this week, only two weeks after having communion, uh, because this is very, very um, common and tied into this, to this text that we celebrate communion together. And as you took of the bread, right? And it's very, very important that you get this. As you took of the bread, we taught about, about it being a representation of the flesh, of the body of Jesus that was broken on, on our behalf for us. And as you took the cup, we taught about this drink being the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the forgiveness of man, to cover the sin of man that was poured out for us. But here's the deal. Whenever I was done taking communion two weeks ago, I didn't leave the table feeling like I just had a feast. Right? How many of you walked away from the communion table and said, Whew, man, that was like a banquet meal laid out, dude. This was like a huge feast. There was like the table was as long as the building. It was just like no one felt that way, right? Like that's not, that's not how it left us. This is um, what we celebrate at that feast is faith. That's what we celebrate when we go to the, the table of communion and we take of the bread and we take of the cup and we remember what those things are. We remember that the bread is a, is a picture of Jesus and his body that was broken for us, his flesh that was broken for us and his blood that we take of the cup, take of the cup that, was, that was poured out for us. Like we remember those things, we celebrate those things because it's, it's the faith that we're, that we're celebrating in those moments. Um, and, and maybe I'll say it this way. This is why probably some of you uh, had a real and meaningful encounter during that moment. Like some of you just really um, had an engagement with Jesus during communion. And some of you just left the table indifferent. The, the, the table of communion puts our faith on the stand, you see. It, it rings up charges on our faith. Now, where's your faith at? Let's put your faith on the stand. What, how does, how did the, how did the table affect you? How did you remember Jesus when you took the bread and you took the cup? Did, did you leave with this engagement with Jesus, this encounter with Jesus, or did you just walk away indifferent? It's an indictment on our, on our faith, to say the least. And so, if, if I could continue to be a little bit more transparent, I guess, some of you um, didn't and still don't believe that communion with Jesus is better than any meal that you can find out there. You, you, you continue to believe that your fulfillment and your satisfaction and your identity are found in things other than Jesus, that you're finding them in other places. So it's by faith that you come to the table, right? And that's one of the things that we ask. The table is meant for those who've, who've laid their yes down to Jesus, who've committed their lives to following Jesus. Like that's who the table belongs to. It's, it's, it's by faith, and by faith you come to Jesus. And, and by faith you are kept in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You understand that your faith is a gift from God. That you've done nothing to muster it up. You've done nothing to earn your salvation. That God has given you a free gift of salvation in his son. By the grace of God, you have been saved. And satisfaction, that this fulfillment this, this, that we try to fill with other things, that satisfaction that we're looking to fill with all kinds of other garbage, that is only sustained by abiding in Jesus. 
right? And so we learned, we learned a lot last week about what, what it means to, to be saved, to obtain salvation. And now we're venturing into what it means to, to obtain, like to sustain salvation, to, to keep it. How do we live in that? How do we stay caught up in that? Verse 56 of John chapter 6 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So satisfaction is only sustained by abiding in Jesus. And that's a word that we need to become familiar with because we're going to see that a lot in the text to come. In these, in these weeks and months to come, this is going to become a very familiar term for us to, to dwell, to be hidden in, to be kept in. That's what the word abide means. And as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Whoever puts his faith in me will live forever. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He just seems to be repeating himself. Guys, guys, you don't get it. You understand the picture of bread. You understand what God did for you in the wilderness and your ancestors. You understand all that, but they died. But if you want to have everlasting life, I am the bread that's come down from heaven that will fully and finally satisfy you. You won't be hungry for any other Savior when you feast on Jesus. As Christians, from the moment we place our faith in Jesus, we are hidden in Jesus. We are kept in Jesus. We are abiding in Jesus. And Jesus is abiding in us. He's dwelling with us. He's kept in us. He's, he's hidden in us. And at the same time, I belong to Jesus like, I, I belong to Jesus right now, right? And, and many of you belong to Jesus now, yet we're left here in the midst of this broken and depraved world. Like, we're, we're here. We're still in the grime and the grit of life, even though we belong to Jesus now. I still have my flesh to deal with. I still have sin in my life. I'm still a mess. But, but I have Jesus abiding in me, and I abide in Jesus and when I dwell with Jesus, Jesus dwells with me. And it's important that we get a hold of this, that we grasp this, because um, as we witnessed with the, with the man, at, the crippled man at Bethesda, remember we went through that just a few weeks ago, and what we saw was that it's quite possible for, um, for you to experience an encounter with Jesus without receiving Jesus. Like, it's quite possible. The man at, Beth the, man at the pool of Bethesda, uh, he, he was crippled, and Jesus came to him and, and healed him and said, get up and walk. And so after, after he had that encounter with Jesus, he, he threw Jesus under the bus. He said, that, that guy who healed me, he's the one who said to get up on the Sabbath. So he's trying to get himself out of some trouble, and he throws Jesus under the bus. So it's, it's very likely that you could have an encounter with Jesus, a real experience with Jesus, and not fully receive Jesus. Because fully receiving Jesus means we abide in him, and he abides in us. And that's the difference. So what does this mean for those of you who are believers and abide in Christ and have Christ abide in you? What does this mean? Because that's, a, again, we get familiar with that term. Um, and so what does it mean? for Christ to abide in me and for me to abide in him. For, for one, his resurrection, or I'm sorry, his death becomes our death. His death becomes our death. That's one way we abide with Jesus. So instead of me trying to reform my life and clean up my sin and clean up my act, instead of trying to do all that, Jesus says, you put it to death. Don't try to, don't try to put the lipstick on a pig deal here. Just put it to death. My, I died so that you can put your sin to death, your sin nature 
to death. And that's very important to know, like, okay, so yes, I, I, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to sin, right? We still live in a world where, where we, we succumb to sinful desires and we, we, we are still living in a broken and depraved place. Uh, but it does mean that there's a decisive moment where I must put my sin nature to death that I'm, I'm putting it to death. And we saw the picture in baptism and we even speak that over those who are being baptized, that I'm buried with him in his death, that the old me is gone, that that sin nature is gone and I'm raised to walk in a new life with Jesus. So that means the other part of that is his resurrection becomes our resurrection. We are raised to walk in a new life with Jesus. Our sin nature has been put to death. We navigate this world Still giving in to sin, still living in a broken and depraved place, still being broken ourselves, right? Being hurt by broken people. We still have to navigate through that, but we don't do it alone. We don't do it alone. Jesus is abiding in us. He's dwelling in us and we're dwelling in him. So his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay in the grave. He overcame the death. He overcame the grave and this eternal life that Jesus has been speaking of is yours when you put your old self to death. When you say, yes, Jesus, I'm dead with you. I'm, that old sin nature, that old man is dead. And I'm raised to walk in a new life, in this new resurrection. So this means, this is very important, everybody check in for just a second because it's very important. I kind of touched on this a couple of weeks ago. It's very important that you and I can stop being afraid of death. We don't have to, as believers, Christ abiding in us and we abiding in Christ, his death has become our death. His resurrection is now our resurrection. We do not have to be afraid of death anymore. Yet we walk around navigating this world and everything about who we are is driven by a fear of death. And I want you to understand what eternal life means. Whenever Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven, who's come down from heaven. You feast on me and you will have life forever. What that means, you know what life forever means? It means it's life without death. It means that the life forever means life forever. You don't die. So in Jesus, we have eternal life. And eternal life didn't begin, like the, the, the clock did get rolled forward to the day of your death, and that's when eternal life starts for you. Eternal life started the minute you feasted on Jesus, the minute you put your old self in the grave and raised a new life with Jesus. So now we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. So now can we have a little bit of confidence about going and telling the world about Jesus? Can we have a little bit of confidence about standing up and saying, I'm doing the right thing regardless if it's popular or not? Regardless of what you do to me? Because I can't die. I already died. And so now I'm living in, in, in this new life with Jesus that's gonna be forever. So his resurrection has become our resurrection. And here's the most beautiful thing about the gospel. Here's the part that I get most amped up about the gospel is that his righteousness is now our righteousness, right? So now, we, we, now we've stepped away from the moral code, the, the behavior modifications, right? That, that we all learned in Sunday school, be good, do good, Jesus is going to smile on you, right? No, Apart from Jesus, we are completely and utterly hopeless and unrighteous and unholy and broken. And so that's good news. The good news is not that Jesus died, and the good news is not that he was raised to life, but the good news is that his righteousness was traded on the cross. He took on everything that we, was, we, we 
had to pay that we owed. And he gave us his righteousness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And this is core to the gospel. This is the center and the, the foundation of that gospel, that good news is that Jesus, that, that's why we call it good news. It's not good news that Jesus died. That's bad news, that Jesus died. It's a little bit better news that he overcame death and was raised from the dead, that he was resurrected. The greatest news is that his righteousness is, is, is now ours in him, that we found righteousness, that thing that we've been trying to fill ourselves with, right? He's become that for us. We don't possess a righteousness on our own. We don't. I don't care how you've behaved or how good or bad your morals are. I don't care about what your, what your past says about you. I don't care about what today says about you. You are dwelling in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at you today, he doesn't look at that person who has fallen and tripped and stumbled over and over and over if you're in Christ. What he sees in Christ is righteous, justified. That's what we see here in Scripture, that, that we are justified in Christ, that we are made right. And that's, that's quite scandalous because we're not right we're broken, and we're messed up, and we don't even deserve that. But praise be to Jesus that, that, that through God, through the grace and the gift of God, that we've received all of his righteousness. Romans 3, 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God or seeks for God. That's a very important verse, that you understand that you don't, apart from God doing something, you're not seeking God. You're not doing right. No one's righteous, and no one seeks God unless God is drawing him. The righteousness that we have has been imputed to us, all right? It has been transferred to us from Jesus to us. It has been given to us. It was outside of us, and now it has been given to us. One of, and I think I've said this about a half a dozen times today, a favorite passage of mine is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, he, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, right? We're talking about Jesus. He became sin, and he didn't even know sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the greatest news of the gospel is right there, that this righteousness was Jesus's from his perfect, sinless life, and it was credited to us. That is why we celebrate Jesus. That is why we celebrate communion. That's why we celebrate the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. And, and so, yes, he, his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His righteousness is our righteousness. His Father is our Father. His Father is now our Father. And so whether you have the best dad in the world or whether you have an absent dad or whether you have a scumbag dad, like I don't know where you're at in all of those things, there is no better news in the gospel than the righteousness that is imputed to us and that we are adopted into the family of God, that he becomes our father who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who will never forget us, who will never be indifferent towards us, who will always be mindful of us, who will always keep his eye on us, who will always care for us, who will always love us unconditionally. We have a father that we were a stranger and an alien, right? That we were far off from God. And through Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. We've been brought into the family of, of God. 
And we've been adopted into his family. We've been given his name. So he brought us in, and he didn't do that to, to make us his slaves or to make us his subjects, right? He didn't do that as a building block to, to his, uh, his uh, kingdom power. He did that because he loves us. And here's the deal. As this family with this father, he will never leave us. Remember what David was talking about last week. You are, you are saved through Jesus Christ. The grace of God, this gift that we're given, uh, saves us and it keeps us. So we don't ever get to leave out of this family. And that's a beautiful picture of adoption is that you're mine and you never leave. Right? That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so not only are we to abide in Jesus, but Jesus is to abide in us. And I've said, you've seen me say this back and forth because that's how Jesus teaches us. And this is where we're going to kind of conclude our message today, that Jesus abides in us. We abide in him and he abides in us. When we get to uh, Jesus talking about, I am the true vine, we're going to see that word come up a lot. And so I just want you to remember that that word means to dwell in, to stay in, to, to keep hidden in. To, to remain with, to hold on to, to cling to. So Jesus, yes, we cling to Jesus, and Jesus clings to us. I want to go back to Romans 8 for a minute. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This is how, this is how we're sustained. This is how our salvation is sustained now. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God abides in you if it's clinging on to you. Although, but, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, because remember, we killed that, we put that in the grave, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, abides in you, clings to you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus is more satisfying than anything else, whatever else you may have been feeding on, Jesus is much more satisfying than that. So do you want a Savior? Do you, do you want a Savior? Do you feel that you need a Savior? I hope your answer is yes, that I feel I need a Savior. Are you this morning conscious of sin? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you are lost? Then Christ died for you and you will be saved, if that is you. Are you this morning conscious that you have no hope in this world but Christ? Do you feel that you, of yourself, cannot offer an atonement that can satisfy God's justice? Have you given up all confidence in yourselves? And can you say, upon your bended knees, Lord, save, or I perish. Lord, save me, or I perish. If that is you, and Christ died for you, and you can be saved. It's just to put your faith in him, to believe him, to believe that he is the one that has come from heaven, sent from the Father, to reconcile man back to him.
That's, that's the invitation that's offered is place your faith in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Feast on this banquet that is Jesus, the one that is all satisfying and that will never leave you hungry. Would you pray with me?